0: Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John chapter 5, the Gospel of John chapter 5. We're going to read verses uh, 1 through 18 and consider those same verses. Before we read it and look at it, let's pray. Our Father, you've given us your word in a language we can understand, transmitted it down through the centuries, and translated it now so we can read it. And as we take a look at it, we ask that you'd fill each of us with your Holy Spirit. You know what we need. Some of us need encouragement. Some of us need to be humbled. Some of us might need to be saved. All of us need to grow. And so we ask that you'd just accomplish your own purposes during this time for Jesus' sake. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here, it's a great story, it's a tragic story really, of a man who was, healed, had every reason to believe in Jesus, and yet, as the episode closes, he gives no evidence of faith. Someone who saw Jesus actually had him perform a miracle on himself, and yet walks away in unbelief, and in fact, remains an enemy of Jesus, so much so that as soon as he finds out who it was that healed him, he goes and tells the Jews to sort of get Jesus in trouble and ramp up the persecution against Jesus. And yet, in this passage, we learn. Uh, quite a bit, and I want us to just walk through this passage looking at three things in particular. First of all, the religion of the pool. Secondly, the condition of the man. And finally, where we'll spend most of our time, the salvation Jesus provides. So the religion of the pool, the condition of the man, and the salvation of Jesus. So beginning with the religion of the pool in verses 1 through 5, notice that this took place. It was called the Pool of Bethesda, which has five-roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So for quite a number of years, uh, nobody had actually found evidence of this pool archaeologically. And this passage was actually used to debunk the historicity of the Bible. And in recent times, archaeologists actually discovered that this pool did exist. And so now it's actually proof that uh, God's word is true. Uh, No secret to any of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, God's word is accurate uh, historically. Um, uh, In some older translations, you'll notice uh, verse 4 is in there, and it refers to an angel of the Lord uh, who would come down and stir up the waters at times. And in other translations, uh, it's not in there. And uh, some of the earlier, maybe more reliable Greek manuscripts actually don't have uh, that reference in there to an angel of the Lord um, they think it's someone who uh, wrote in there later a copyist to sort of describe what people had believed. Nonetheless, we find out that the waters were stirred up, whether it be from the wind or likely from a spring underneath it so that the water would start to bubble or move around. And when that stirring occurred, the thought was that if you're the first one in the pool, you'll be healed. Now again, uh, you know, adults believe this, right? You're thinking, how, how is it that adults would actually come to believe that if you're the first one in, A body of water after the spring bubbles up a little bit you'll be healed of your diseases and it could be that uh, at one point in time somebody had actually gone into the water one of the pools and their backache or their tight muscles had been relieved their soreness had been relieved and so what they perceived to be debilitating had actually worked itself out and so they left healed and thus began the superstition it's hard to know we're not told how this thought began but the thought was that if you enter this water uh, after it's been stirred up and you're the first one, you'll be be healed. So here sits a man. He's been invalid for 38 years, can't walk, lame. Nobody's bringing him down here. And he's sitting by this pool simply waiting. Uh, He can't see uh, how horrible this situation looks. He can't see how powerless and weak his perceived solution to his problem is, "I'm paralyzed. I'm lame. I can't walk. And I'm going to get in the water as soon as I see bubbles, and if I'm the first one in, I'll be healed." He can't. He can't envision that or see that. He just believes in this false religion, this this God of his, and he thinks if only I can do this, I will be healed. Uh, we would probably call this insanity. I remember. Uh, I think it's a quote attributed to Albert Einstein, and. Narcotics Anonymous in 1982 actually picked it up. They said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. You would have gone to the sky and said, look, what you're doing is insanity. You're sitting by this pool year after year after year, and yet you're expecting a different result. You're expecting that you're going to get down to that water first, and that even if you did do that, you'd be healed. It's not going to work. And yet, beloved, uh, this is how powerful false religions are. This is how powerful the religion of the pool was to everybody around us. This wasn't the only man around there. There were lots of people lame, paralyzed, blind. And they were waiting to get in this pool as well. They all believed the exact same thing. From the first one in, I will be healed. And I want us just to pause and, and think about this briefly. Every false religion will fail the adherence, the adherence except Christianity. Christianity is the only religion that will actually bring joy. It's the only religion that will bring hope. Every other religion disappoints. This man had been disappointed for 38 years, and yet he's going to sit there and continues to sit there. And Christianity is the only one that could bring him hope. Look, if our God is family, if our God is drugs, sex, career, you name it, it's all going to disappoint. Jesus Christ is the only one who can actually solve our problem. Uh, before we move on, is this mic going out? Is this, you can hear okay? Okay, gotcha. Awesome. So the second thing, we have the religion of the pool. Then we have the condition of the man. Um, and, and what I want us to sort of bear down on or look at closely is how he's blame-shifting. So there's two evidences that he's a blame shifter, doesn't want to accept his condition. The first is found in verse seven. He said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps in front of me. So he's saying, I think the mic battery might be going out. We'll we'll try this. Uh, if, If you can't hear me do this or do this, wave your hands or whatever, I'll try and speak louder. So if you look at verse 7, he said, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps in front of me. So he's saying, look, I'm not healed because no one will help me, and everyone at the pool is too selfish. They won't allow me to go first. They're going in ahead of me. So he's blaming his situation on everybody else. But... The real reason why he isn't healed, actually, we find in verse 14, is because of his own sin. Jesus said, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus is telling him that it was his own sin that made him an invalid for 38 years. Now, just a quick qualification here. Does handicappedness and sickness and illness mean that we're in sin? Absolutely not. Sometimes it does, but not always. In fact, in a few chapters, in John chapter 9, we're going to meet Jesus healing a blind man who was born blind. And the disciples ask him, who sinned, he or his parents? As in, in their minds, if you're sick and you're born blind or you're lame or whatever, it's got to be because of sin. And Jesus sort of puts the kibosh on it, and in in an interesting way says, neither one. But he was born this way so that God could be glorified. So it is possible that uh, some sickness is related to sin, but there's a lot of sickness and illness that has nothing to do with anyone's personal sin. It's just an effect of living in a fallen world, living in fallen bodies. But in this man's case, his, his invalidness, his inability to walk was based on his sin, but he kept blaming other people for it. The second way he blame shifted was, if you look at verse 10, The religious authorities were blaming this man for breaking the Sabbath laws. They said, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful lawful for you to take up your bed. So instead of him saying, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong, I should have put my bed down, (laughs) he says in verse 11, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So he blames Jesus for breaking the Sabbath laws. (laughs) Now, these laws were ridiculous, man-centered laws. We'll look at that later on in the Gospel of John as Jesus keeps confronting this. But instead of owning this, his own problem, this man continually blame shifted, blamed other people and even blamed Jesus for his problems rather than simply uh, taking the blame himself where he was blameworthy. Beloved, we've been doing this as human beings ever since the days of Adam and Eve. God comes to Adam and God comes to Eve and what do they do? They send it on down the line. It's the serpent who made me. It's the woman you gave me. But nobody actually says, yep, Lord, I blew it. I sinned. You told me not to eat of this fruit, and I did it. They just blame shift. And we actually, by nature, are really good at this. I want to just talk about us as believers, or to us as believers, just for a moment, and then talk about how this works in the lives of non-Christians. But first, as believers, it's possible actually for us to go through life stuck in our sin, Stuck in a really bad spot like this man is. He looks pathetic, sitting by the pool, no possibility of being healed, and blaming everybody else. It's possible for us to go through life this way. We'll blame our parents. We'll blame our spouses. We'll blame our church. We'll blame anybody around us saying, Here's why I can't grow. Here's why I'm continuing to sin in the very ways that I'm sinning. It's somebody else's fault. And what Christ is trying to get this man to see and what he wants us to see is actually our sin is our own fault. Nobody else is sinning for us. If we're sinning, it's coming from our own heart. If we're sick spiritually, it's coming from our own heart and we need to work this out. And sometimes in the, I trust as we've reached out to people who are lost, we will oftentimes find a lot of blame shifting as well when we confront people with the claims of Christ and tell them hey here's how to be saved and uh, have you ever considered christianity have you ever thought about believing in Jesus and a lot of people will they'll say well look my parents were believers i grew up in a christian home but my parents lived like the devil they treated me horribly therefore i'm not going to buy into this christianity stuff and a way to respond to that you know could be look i'm sorry that that's how your parents treated you etc but you can blame your parents for not believing in Jesus, but on the last day, that's not going to do you any good. You're not going to stand in judgment before your parents on the last day. You're going to stand before Jesus. And the issue isn't, what do you think your parents and their faith, or were your parents Christians? That's not the issue. The issue is, what do you say about Jesus? What do you say about him when you look at him face to face? Some people blame the church, too. They say, well, I've seen how Christians live and how they operate and I was in a church, and it just blew up, and so I don't want to have anything more to do with Christ. But again, that's going to have nothing to do with judgment on the last day, right? We can stand before Jesus and say on the last day, look, your people blew it, the church was a mess, and Jesus say, that's fine. I didn't ask you to believe in my church. I didn't ask you to believe in my people. The call for you was to believe in me, because I'm perfect, the church isn't. I'm perfect, my people aren't. I'm worthy of your belief. The command isn't to believe in anyone else or anything else. The command is to believe in me. So there's many ways we can blame shift beloved. Christians do it. Non-Christians do it. And this man here was, was doing it as well. And I want us to consider this. Christianity is the only religion which gives us a reason and grants us comfort in the midst of accepting our own faults and our own blames, what we're blameful for. This is why Christians, of all people, can humbly acknowledge our own faults and failures without being totally dejected. When, when we find out something's our fault, instead of passing the buck saying, yeah, I did that because so-and-so, they did this or whatever, we can say, yep, I blew it. Well, why aren't you despairing? Be- because I know in Christ I'm forgiven. Yeah, I could have done that a lot better. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I made that mistake. Well, you should, go, you should go live in the dust the rest of your life. No, I, I, will, I will live as though I'm sorry, and I will seek to amend my ways. But I'm forgiven in Christ, so I don't have to be despairing. Well, the Christianity is the only religion which can give people comfort in the midst of admitting our own sins and faults rather than blame shifting. Because our God doesn't love us because we're good people. God didn't say, yeah, you guys are a cut above the rest. I looked at the whole world and I saw these few people and they were amazing. And so I made them mine. That's why we're Christians. That's not how God this works, beloved. God saw a massive fallen humanity and we are just like everybody else. And in his grace, he saved us and pulled us out. So we don't have to put on this show. We can accept blame. And then the third thing, and and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time that I want us to see is, the way Jesus saves. So the religion at the pool, the condition of the man, and then finally the way Jesus saves. And I want us to know several things about this. Uh, the first is found in verse 6. He comes to us in mercy. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So this man is in a miserable condition. There are many people at the pool, many other people at the pool. And yet Jesus picks out this one man and he comes to him and asks this one man, do you want to be healed? This man didn't search out Jesus. He didn't come to Jesus and say, please heal me. Jesus approached him. Beloved, this is exactly how salvation works. We, we sing the song, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord that could not be. My heart would still refuse thee. But we love because God's loved us." We go out into the world and love people because God's first loved us. The reason that we go out into the world and are any different is because God's first sought us out and extended us mercy. So again, you see that in this beautiful portrait. Jesus actually goes to the pool at Bethesda. Most people would have avoided it. Most people wouldn't have gone around this place. And yet Jesus shows up in the worst possible place to heal the worst possible people. And and this one man in particular, that's exactly what he's done for our souls. He showed up, we weren't asking him to, we were his enemies. And he said, I'm going to grant you healing. The second thing about the way Jesus saves that I'd like us to see is that he saves us entirely. If you look at verse 7, the man said, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So this man was simply looking to Jesus for assistance. I don't know if he catch this. He says, Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the guy's like, I got nobody to help me. I don't have crutches. I don't have a wheelchair. I don't have anybody to pick me up and bring me down there. I got no way to get down there. And so implicitly or uh, indirectly, he's asking Jesus for some help. Do you want to be healed? And the man's saying, yeah, you got, if you got five minutes or, you got a couple years. You, you want to sit by me and wait till this water stirred up again. I could use some really good help. And notice what Jesus does. He doesn't sit down and wait it out. He doesn't say, Well, hey, you know, how often is this water stirred up? Are we are we talking days? Are we talking hours? Are we talking weeks? He actually looks at the man and says, Look, get up. And he heals him instantly. This man's looking for assistance. Jesus is not interested in giving him assistance. He's interesting in healing him completely on his own. And beloved, that's exactly the way that God saves people. This physical healing is a great picture of spiritual healing and what this looks like when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. This grates against all human pride. By nature, we as people, you can see it all over the internet. You can hear it in all the books that are written on self-help. By nature, we want assistance. But don't anyone dare tell me that I am too bad and too wicked and too evil and too unable to save myself and get in God's good graces. Don't anybody dare tell me that. We can handle, yeah, God's come down to help me. God sent Jesus to give me an example to mimic. Uh, God come down here and just help me to the pool, but don't tell me that I'm healed instantly. Don't just heal me. I want to contribute to this. I want to be part of this. Beloved, that's where lost people are. That's where we all were before we came to Christ. Is we don't want somebody to come in and say, salvation, being made right with God, you can't even do it. You don't even have the ability to do it. That's what the message of the Bible is. It's not even possible if you lived a thousand years to please God were that broken. And notice the mercy of Christ. He doesn't come down here to this man or to us and say, yeah, I'll give you a little help. He actually does it all by himself. He just heals the man miraculously and heals him completely without any help from this man. And that's exactly what he does when he saves everyone. Every soul Jesus saves, he does all by himself with no help from any of us. We don't have to do a thing. This should cause every one of us to sing, beloved. Human beings look to Jesus and say, help me. And Jesus comes into our lives and says, I don't need your help. Don't want your help. I'm going to the cross all alone. You're going to watch me, and I'm going to pay for all of your sins all by myself. And all you do is believe. That's it. And I'll even give you the gift of faith. Tremendous. It should cause our souls to sing that when he comes in, he heals us completely all by himself. The third aspect of this salvation is that he comes with spiritual uh, healing. So when he asks the question, do you want to be healed? Another way of saying it is, do you want to be sound? Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be healthy? And uh, uh, the question is an interesting question, because he, he doesn't simply say, look, do you want your life to be perfect after this? Do you want to do whatever you want to do in your life? He says, do you want to be sound? Do you want to be healthy? Now, think about this spiritually for just a moment. When God comes into people's lives, as it were, uh, he's not simply saying, do you want heaven? He's not saying, do you want to avoid hell? If he did that, everyone would answer yes. But God's asking this question, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be equipped to live for the purposes for which I've made human beings? Do you want to become whole as a person so that you're no longer broken and selfish and living for yourselves? Do you actually want to be able to live for the purposes I've created you? And that's oftentimes where people jump off the bandwagon saying, no, I'll take heaven. I don't want to go to hell, but I don't want to be sound in the sense of living for your glory, God. I don't want to obey your commandments. I don't want to be put together that way. Just give me, get me out of hell, give me heaven, and let me do whatever I want. But that's not the salvation that God offers, beloved. God doesn't offer a salvation that says, hey, before, before all the glory, you just going to do whatever you please. God offers a salvation that says, look, I'm giving you eternal life. When, when you believe in me, you're going to die to self. You're going to follow me. You're going to deny yourself. You're going to pick up your cross. You're going to serve me for the 50 years you live, maybe, 40, 60, 70, whatever it is we have left. You're going to to pour yourself out for my glory and for my good and for my kingdom. And afterwards, you'll receive eternal life. Millions after millions of years, you won't even have started warming up in heaven. That's the comparison. I'm going to give you eternal life in exchange for what you're going to do is believe in me and then serve me for 50 years. It's an amazing exchange. I'm going to pay for all your sin, the Lord says. I'll take care of all your debt. You're mine. You belong to me, and I'll love you perfectly. But who wouldn't do this? Except people just stubborn in sin. That's just how hard-hearted we are. It's how lost we are by nature. So Jesus comes with spiritual healing, and he asks people, look, do you want me to make you whole again? Do you want me to make you whole? It's a different sort of question, and it's an interesting one. And it's something that as we go out into the world, I remember one person talking about evangelism, and uh, they had been evangelizing on Missouri State's campus in Springfield for quite a while. And they had many people who had supposedly come to faith and uh, had, were following Christ for a few weeks, like a group of about 30 people, And after a few weeks, they started diving into the word a little bit more. And what they discovered is that following Christ means not just that I get to go to heaven and not just that uh, all my sins are forgiven, but it means I actually have to follow him, that I become his student, that he's going to heal me, not just in heaven, but even now. And he's going to heal me of my selfishness. And he's going to heal me of my self-centeredness, which means pain. It means self-denial. It means He's going to call me to do things that I don't want to do. It means following Jesus is going to make me unpopular with some of my friends. And many of them just walked back and said, "I, I want heaven, I want forgiveness, but I don't want this pain in this life. I don't want to be put back together that way. I'm humpty dumpty, I'm broken, but don't put me back together like that. I don't want to serve God this way. I'll take all the benefits, but I don't want the cross before the crown. So God heals when he, when he comes and saves us, beloved, he heals us all the way through. And right now, as his people, he is forming us into the image of his son, and you'll feel it. It's painful. He's come into our lives to heal us of our, of our sin, not just forgive our sin, but heal us from it and mold us into the image of his son. And then the fifth thing I want us to see, and then one more in closing, is that it graciously warns us of hell. Uh, verses 13 to 14, the man... Who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It's that last little phrase, sin no more, that nothing may happen to you. He's given this man a a really gracious warning. And as Christians, because we know the rest of the Bible, we know what the something worse that could happen to him is. And it's not becoming an invalid again. It's not becoming lame again. It's not becoming paralyzed. What Jesus is likely referring to, the worst thing that may happen to him, is that he persists in the sin of unbelief, which is the greatest sin that there is, not believing in Jesus. He persists in that sin, dies in unbelief, and then perishes in hell forever. And what Jesus is making clear to this man and to us is that if we don't believe in him, if we persist in our unbelief, we will end up in a far worse place than anything we've ever experienced in life. Look, this man's paralysis, this man's lameness, blindness, joblessness, rejection by family, loneliness, think of the worst illness, will pale in comparison and will look like a vacation when compared to hell under God's wrath, forever beloved. And Jesus is graciously warning this man of that. Now we, we sort of live in a day where people don't like to hear hard things. People don't like to hear judgments or convictions from God. They just love a God who's loving, but don't tell me that judgment's coming. But, so they might think, this is not a gracious warning. How is that gracious? That's mean. You could actually make a good argument that it's mean, if the warning wasn't given before the judgment came. You could argue, well, that's not, you didn't even give me time to repent. The judgment came, and then you said, oh, by the way, judgment's coming. Well, again, you could argue that that's that's not loving. But Jesus is giving this man a warning while he still has time. And the gospel call as it goes out says, repent or perish. Today's the day of salvation. And so what God warns us, beloved, of the wrath that is to come, when he warns us of horrible things that are to come, when we go out and we tell lost people, wrath is coming, the world's going to burn up, you're going to stand face to face with Jesus when we go out and tell them that that's gracious because there's time to repent, because judgment hasn't come yet. And so it's a gracious warning. And that's what Jesus does for this man. That's what we do when we go out, and that's what I'm doing this very day as we look at this passage saying, look, beloved, worse things are coming. Things that are worse than our sicknesses. Things that are worse than losing our two legs if we end up in, in this world with no legs and no arms. If we end up in a world in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic, there are worse things coming. Far worse things. And, the, and, and here's the worst thing. Eternity under God's wrath for not believing in Jesus. So beloved... All of us need Christ. Everyone needs to believe in him. Every one of us needs to put our sin to death, trust in Christ, uh, believe in him, and have all of our sins forgiven. That's what the gospel call is that goes out. And it's a gracious call. And then one more thing I want us to notice, and I think this is maybe the most fascinating, is that Jesus works to sacrifice himself. So Jesus could have done this miracle on any other day. This guy has been an invalid for 38 years. Okay? He could have done it the day before, he could have done it the day after, and it wouldn't have affected the man at all really. For, to him, this is just another day of not being able to walk. But Jesus did it on the Sabbath because he is seeking a confrontation with all the religious leaders who have turned this Sabbath in just a, into just a burden. The Sabbath was supposed to be a delight, the Sabbath was made for man, it was made for our benefit, for our blessing. But the Jewish leaders have filled it up with laws, regulations. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. And Jesus has taken that head on. And as he's doing it, he's doing something powerful to himself. Before we get to that, I want to mention uh, Alfred Alfred, uh, Edersheim. He was a Jewish Christian theologian in the 19th century. He wrote a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And in one of the appendices of that book actually unfolds kind of the details of the Jewish Sabbath laws from the Mishnah, and here are some of the strictures. So, on the Sabbath, you were confined to a certain length of journey. So, an ordinary Sabbath day's journey was 200 cubits, or about 300 feet, beyond your home. Traveling any farther than 3,000 feet from your home was sinful, unless the day before you had deposited two meals at a location 3,000 feet away. Then the location of the two meals was considered your dwelling house, so you could walk another 300 feet beyond that. So, You're starting to see the details of this. Uh, The carrying of items on the Sabbath day was divided into two actions, picking up the item and putting the item down. Uh, Public versus private life. If you pick something up in a public place and set it down in a private place, you are fine. If you threw something in the air with your left hand but caught it in the air with your right hand, there was not any sin. But if you threw something in the air and caught it with the same hand, that was sinful. And then another one, if a person was in one place and his hand filled with fruit stretched into another place and the Sabbath overtook him, he would have to drop the fruit, since if he withdrew his full hand from one locality to another, he would be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. So these are just an example of all the crazy laws that were in force by the Jewish leaders, by the rabbis of Jesus' day regarding the Sabbath. And on this Sabbath day, Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. You know, Pick your bed up, which is a clear violation of the Sabbath. So Jesus is going head on in confrontation with the Jewish leaders, using this man to accomplish his purposes. And we're told in verses 15 to 16 and 18, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So something else the Jews understood about Sabbath is that God is the only one who is allowed to work on the Sabbath without sinning. No one else could do any work. This man was clearly violating the Sabbath. But God can do whatever he wants on the Sabbath. So when Jesus says, I am working, my father's working, and I am working, they immediately knew he was claiming to be God. He's saying that it's okay for him to work on the Sabbath. They all believed that it it was good for the father to work on the Sabbath. There's nothing wrong about that. Jesus is saying, my father's working, and I'm working too. And that's why it's okay, as it were. So that's why they understood Jesus is claiming to be God, because he's working on the Sabbath. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, what else? What, what is Jesus doing here? Notice just this detail here. This man left. The authorities asked him who did this, who, who commanded him to do it. He didn't know. Jesus found this man out in the temple. Verse 14, he found him out. And then this man knew it was Jesus. And then he could report it. Jesus did not leave this man to not know who he was. Jesus wanted this man to go report his name to the authorities. What is going on here? Jesus wants to go to the cross. Did you notice what the passage said? This is why they were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath and making himself equal with God. This man goes out and doesn't know who it is. Who healed him? The authorities want to know. And Jesus says, I don't want anybody else blamed for this. I want them to blame me. Loved, you will never ever, in anywhere in the world, in any religion, find a God who comes down into this world, who wants to die for wretched people, who wants to go to the cross so that an invalid, whom he healed, who can't stand his guts and turns them into the authorities, can have the opportunity to hear the gospel and repent and believe. Jesus doesn't want any of this to be assigned to anyone else. He doesn't want anyone else blamed. So he goes and finds the man in the temple so that this man knows, oh, it was Jesus who healed me. And he can go and report to the authorities, yep, it was Jesus who did it, so that all the blame can be put on Jesus Christ for what this man is doing. For any who don't believe, as we encounter people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we were there too before we came to Christ, there's only one way to be healed, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll never in any religion find anyone who will love you like this, who will look at you in all of your wretchedness, in all of your sin, in all of your ungratefulness like this man had. Jesus healed him, and he still couldn't stand his guts. No other God will look at you like that and say, I'm going to go to the cross and die for you. I'm going to go die for a sinner just like you so that you can repent and believe in me and have eternal life. There's no love like that anywhere in the world. That's why the gospel is so amazing. And for Christians, just, there's many things we could leave with. Here's what I want us to leave with resounding in our ears. Jesus died for you and me when we were still sinners, and he did this all by himself. And when he came, he didn't come to blame you and me, though we're the ones worthy of blame. He didn't come to say it's all their fault, though it is all our fault. He came to say, I'm owning this. I'm going to stand in their place. I'm the only one who's going to go to the cross. I'm going to make sure nobody else goes for me because I'm here to rescue people. I'm here to save people. And I'm here to give them eternal life. Beloved, he's done that for you and me. Jesus came to die. He wanted to die in our place so that we could have eternal life. He's the one we're serving. He's the one we're going back to then, unlike this man. Instead of turning him in, we're going back to Jesus every day and we're saying what? Thank you. Thank you for coming to die for me. Thank you for seeking to die for me. Thank you for making sure that I didn't have to be blamed for the cross and go to the cross. Thank you for putting all the blame on you and going and paying my debt so that I can live the rest of my life praising you and in an eternity in heaven singing your graces. Let's pray.